We have a lot to cover. Last week, I said the same thing. We had a lot to cover. Uh, I didn't get as far as I had hoped last week, so I want to honor our time. want to honor the text. Let's jump in and get going this morning. Just to, as kind of a refresher, if you weren't here or if you just need kind of the, the cyclical pattern that we see, uh, last week we saw Jephthah, the latest appointed judge in our narrative, the, the one that took control, if you will. He made an unnecessary vow to God. Like it wasn't something God initiated. If you remember last week, it wasn't something that God said, I need you to do this, nor was this even intended for Jephthah to do. Instead, Jephthah just felt that it wasn't enough to just take the faithful covenant-keeping Yahweh at his word. And so the judge, he then sacrificed. This vow that he makes is, is that he would sacrifice whoever would walk through the door first. If God would do this, if he would deliver him from his enemies and he would find victory on the battlefield, when he returned home, whoever walked out of the door first as he returned from battle, Jephthah would make a sacrifice and sacrifice that person, that being. I'm sure he thought it was an animal, a chicken, a goat, or a lamb. But what we see as he returns, out of his front door comes his one and only child. And so Jephthah actually ends up sacrificing his daughter. It was a terrible scene. Uh, We've seen some horrific things throughout Judges, but this was one of the ones that kind of like... Man, this dude thought he was doing something. He was adding to what God had asked him to do. God never asked him to make this vow, but Jephthah felt like he needed to, and he ended up sacrificing his own daughter. So what we saw, nonetheless, was this. Culture influenced him more than the Word of God. Like That was the big idea last week. And in that reality, where culture becomes your primary influence, it's clear, and I said this last week, there was a God everyone wanted. There is a God who is, and they're not the same God. So in this culture, there's that God that everybody wants. Like, man, I want God to be like this. And uh, you think back to Talladega Nights and little baby Jesus, like this. Whatever you think, like we we make culture out of this. We want this God to be like this. But then there's a God who is, and the God of the Bible. And so we see this turning point in each of our lives when we stop seeking the God that we think we need and start seeking the God who is. Not what you want, not what you think you need, but actually who God actual, who he is. And so at this point in the story, Jephthah, he finds himself trying to grieve, just sacrifice his daughter. This is where I got to last week. But here comes the people of Israel, ready to fight the people of Israel. Did you hear that? We saw this a few weeks ago with Craig when he preached, but now we see the people of Israel ready to come and fight the people of Israel. A war within is about to unfold. And so I wanted to circle back to this. I could have just kept going, but I think it's important for this time as a family of families, as a church, as a young church plant. Like as they return victorious from battle, Jephthah ends up sacrificing his one and only child. We see The Ephraimites, another tribe of Israel, come in hot with jealousy and anger towards Jephthah and his people. Again, both tribes, Israel, both would say that God is king, but both are clearly living as if they were the king. And so what are they mad at? Like, why are the Ephraimites coming after Jephthah and his people? Well, they they claim, if you go back and read this in um, chapter... 12, or uh, yeah, chapter 12, you can see they claim that Jephthah excluded them from the victory 
that occurred. They were glory-hungry people. They wanted in on the action, similar to a few chapters earlier. Right? They begin to threaten their appointed judge. They're ungrateful. They're insensitive to the fact that Jephthah, by his own doing, it doesn't matter. Nonetheless, he's still grieving the loss of his daughter. And so they come to him and they're like, hey, dude, why didn't you invite us into this? We wanted part of the victory. We're together in this. And we're now extremely angry that you didn't let us in on this. To the point that if you go back, you can see that they were ready to burn down his, own, his entire home with Jephthah in it. They were seeking revenge. And so Jephthah says, hey, I called for you. Remember, let me, let me set the record straight. If you think back to how he does this, he, there's a little bit of some honorable things here. He says, let me set the record straight. I called for you and you never answered. So why are you coming at me now? Why are you coming after me? Maybe they didn't answer because they were unsure if victory would happen. Maybe they weren't willing to submit to Jephthah as leader. Maybe they feared losing their own lives. It really makes no difference because we see that a war within breaks out. Jephthah calls together the men and he says, hey, if they're going to come at us, let's go. Men of Gilead, they fought against Ephraim and they struck them down. So Jephthah ends up taking down God's own people when they oppose him. He's not angry that they opposed God. This is a personal attack, and Jephthah says, we're taking them down. 42, Keller put it like this. 42,000. The reason I'm coming back to this, this isn't like, I mean, even if one person lost their life, it's worth me noting. 42,000 people, members of the people of God, die at the hands of the people of God. Unsurprisingly, the narrator records that Jephthah was judge for six years, but not, unlike all the other judges until now, not that he brought peace. At the end of a judge's life, you would see peace for X amount of years. We don't see that. Ephraimite blood is in the Jordan River, and that has ruined peace within. All because people, his own tribe, opposed him. Like he went to battle and killed 42,000 of his own people because they opposed him. Well, I wanted to come back to this. Do we fight fairly or do we fight to win the war within our own tribe? Are we humble and, humble and joyful as we fight? Are we living out the one another's? Are we willing to come to the table and work through our differences? Maybe it's in parenting with our children. Maybe it's in our own marriage. Maybe it's in with our, within our own friendships. But are we willing to fight fairly or do we want to roll the sleeves up? I know I'm right. And so therefore, I'm going to crush whoever comes against me. Whoever opposes me because I know what's right. I mean, that's what Jephthah did. He knew it was right. Hey, brothers, I've reached out to you. You chose not to help me. And so because of that, I'm now angry and you're opposing me. And so I'm coming at you. It's not righteous anger. There is such a thing as being righteous anger. This is just flat out ignorance and, and being angered because somebody is opposing him. I think if we'd be honest, we'd realize we're not so different. Multiple times, Keller has gone on, Tim Keller has, in regards to the church, the greatest problem in the church, he says this, 
or he says the greatest problem in the church is the church. I mentioned that a few weeks ago, talking about how we fight and bite amongst each other, and this is what he goes on. He says, if we spent as much time pursuing unity and overlooking insults within our churches as we do seeking to remain on good terms with the world, our communities would be far less divided and far more loving. And we need to learn to ask the better questions. Where am I too quick to judge my fellow Christians? What differences within our faith do I use as opportunities to look down on others? Who am I refusing to forgive, relishing deep down the opportunity to shun them? Y'all, my, my prayer, especially when we went through Ephesians, if you think back to the unity and, and talking about us as a young church, may we be a church marked by love for God and for one another. Think back to 1 John. That we would be marked with this love that we have for God because the, God the Father loves us. And because he loves us, we now love one another dearly. Like we come to the table ready, willing. If we're going to roll the sleeves up, we're going to roll the sleeves up with humility and joy and say, hey, I'm here to work through this. Like I, I think the church, if, if the church is the church's biggest problem, to me, I look at that and I think, yeah, in our culture, in our society, we go to social media way too quick. We love to tell people what we think or repost a blog of, of things that we like. We love everybody to know where we stand. And man, even if the other side of the screen, it's, a, it's another Christian, we could care less about that person and we will do whatever it takes as long as we are heard because we're right. We'll, we'll go to whatever length, whatever cost to be right in the eyes of culture, in the eyes of other people. We're so quick to do that, and I'm asking us, would be so quick to just lay down our pride and humbly come before one another and say, hey, can we work through this? And so my prayer is that we'd invest our time into pursuing unity with one another in this church. Like, that should be what sets us apart. Man, that, that church, they fight fairly. Man, that marriage, they actually work through their differences, they don't roll their sleeves up and just knock down whoever's in front of them and opposes them. They actually work through things. So yes, I wanted to come back to this. I wanted us to see this. And so this next part two, if you will, we look at our text, verse 8 through 15. Jephthah, he ends up judging for six years, and then he dies, and Israel goes back to doing what was right in their own eyes. And in these next few verses... Uh, kind of tell us uh, several judges that span a period of 25 years. So I'll go quickly through this as Jared read them. Ibzon, what's interesting here is that his children all married outside of the tribe. I think there's something to that. You can look at that. I think there's something to Culture just kept influencing him, and it just became convenient, and those conveniences became compromises, and this compromise was that they married outside of who God told them to. God said, drive out the people of this land. And the Israelites said, hey, I think our kids should marry them. We should have grandkids together. We should do this because this makes sense. And then you have, that was Ibzon. Then you have Elon. He purchased Twitter. Um, no? A little bit. Just making sure you're paying attention. Ironically, the author gives us zero unique insight to his life or how he judged. And then from there we have Abdon. He, like Jair, back in chapter 10, he had some sons and some grandsons, and they rode donkeys. That's what we have of these three judges, 25 years total of judgment. 
And the summation of the verbs that we could use to describe them is this. He judged, he died, and he was buried. So I think the main point narrator puts that in is none of them are, are recorded as having saved Israel. But there's something to that. God appointed them. They were judges, so influenced by culture. And then part three in chapter 13, we have this. Kick off the beginning of the last cycle as usual. The Israelites again, as we just saw, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. Now I think it's worth mentioning this as often as I can. The Israelites weren't doing anything wrong in their own eyes. Narrator doesn't go as much to say that. I guess at some point he says... They did what was right in their own eyes. But thus far, it's been what? The Israelites, again, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Like, Do you see that? They did what was wrong in the Lord's sight. So as we've talked through this narrative, it's become clear that they more, the more the Israelites compromised, the more calloused they became towards the way of God. Like this was just their way of life at this point wasn't that they were doing evil in their own eyes. It's just that they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. No one was questioning their actions. No one was doubting like, the evil behind their actions. They were just living in culture that said, hey, you do you, and as long as you're happy, just keep going. Now, I, I think the way moving forward for us where we find ourselves in the West, in 2023, I, I, I think the way moving forward for us will not be easy. Us being Christians. Like, I, I wish I had better news for us all. But since the fall in Genesis 3, we see this war waging against us. Again, recall back to Ephesians. He says, Paul says, it's not against flesh and blood. This battle that you're facing, this tension that we feel, the tension that we live in, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Like, I, I don't think it's going to get any easier. I don't think there'll be a day where you can go on your Facebook news feed and say, I love Jesus, and there's not going to be one negative comment on there. Like, I, I don't... I don't think there's going to be a day where you show up to your workplace and you say, I'm having a Bible study in the lunchroom. I know y'all want to hear about Jesus. Come on. Like, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be that easy. I don't, I don't know the last time it was that easy. Like, I, I don't think it's going to be easy for us to teach our children to be missionaries in their schools. Like, I, I recall a day when I was Ellie's age having a chance to like, lead a Bible study for coaches and players on our football team from 7th grade on up through 12th grade. Before the game, before practice, like, it was nothing for me to walk in. Might have been a preacher's kid, I might have been obnoxious, definitely dealt with some self-righteousness, but nonetheless, I could carry my Bible into the locker room, and I could point people to Jesus. Like, I, I don't think we're living in those days where it's that easy. But may we not forget this beautiful truth that we have, His Word, might be a war waging for our souls, but we have his word and we have his spirit. And so Paul, later in Ephesians, says, stand firm. He doesn't say bow down. 
Don't be a coward. He says, stand firm. And I think if it's easy for us, like if it was just this easy route, there's a good chance we're going to get caught up in a culture that's doing what's right in their own eyes. In other words, if you look around and you're like, there's nothing really hard in my life right now, I would beg to question, is it because you're marked with the love of Christ or is it because you look very much like the culture? And that might be a bit harsh, but I want you to consider that. If life is easy for you right now and you think, man, it's really easy to be a Christian, I would venture to say cultural Christianity has, has snuck in, has crept in in a sneaky way to where you're like, man, we're all going to heaven and everybody around me, my neighbors, they, everybody's just kind of doing their own thing. think it would be easy for us to look at that and not calling sin what it is, evil in the Lord's sight. So the good news I do have is this church is advancing. All across the world right now, people are gathering. They're gathering to proclaim the name of Jesus. We have missionaries. We have men and women in our church that their brothers or sisters are missionaries. We have the church advancing in Muslim and Islamic territories faster than it is probably in Parker County to some extent. The gospel is advancing. All across the globe, people are waking up and they're saying, hey, I want to be all in on following Jesus. So my prayer for us is that we would fight for unity and fight the sin in our life, that we would be marked with the love of Jesus. We fight fairly and we would actually fight sin in our life. We should look different. And then part four this morning, the rest of chapter 13, we're going to see our last judge come into play. We've had 13 weeks. I said this earlier in Judges so far. I think it's pretty neat. Uh, as I was planning this out, I didn't really know where week 13 would get us. But in God's providence, we're going to take a break from Judges, and we're going to kick off Advent soon, which is the coming of our king. We're going to celebrate that. And yet this morning, we actually are going to see some pretty amazing similarities between the story of Samson's birth and the birth of our Savior. Now, I didn't know this as much. Like, I remember a little bit of the story of Samson. I remember the cool parts, right? Like, as a kid, if it was a comic book, it was awesome, right? Some of the things that we're going to go over. I also don't remember as a kid thinking how much um, it foreshadowed the birth of Christ. I also don't remember how terrible Samson actually was. So, 13 weeks so far. We've got nine weeks left. Um, and so let's finish strong this morning. Here we go. As they did what was right in their own eyes, God handed them over to the Philistines, perhaps the most serious military threat up to this point thus far for Israel is the Philistines. They're stuck with them for 40 years before God steps in. And as the story goes, he steps in in a pretty unique way. The narrator, he gives us at this point the details of the encounter of Samson's parents and the angel of the Lord. Now, Samson's dad was named Manoah. He was from the tribe of Dan, and he's married to a woman who not only had no children, but could not conceive a child. And I love that she's an unnamed woman. I just think there's so much humility in the lives of women in Scripture. Like We're going to see some unbelievable things take place here. So yes, a nameless woman yet again. She couldn't conceive a child. God is beginning to act on saving his people. Remember, as a judge is appointed, it's, it's a deliverer. 
It's somebody who steps in and saves and rescues for a certain period of time. So God's beginning to act on saving his people. And an angel of the Lord appears to her suddenly and announces to her that she would soon bear a son. And what does the angel of the Lord say? He will be a Nazarite to God from birth. And this child of yours, hear this, will begin. I think that's key. Will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. Now, a few things that I'm going to cover quickly about the birth of Samson. Number one is an angel of the Lord appeared to a woman. Samson is the only judge chosen before he is ever born or conceived. It's kind of a big deal. And then lastly, that he would be set apart as a Nazarite from birth. To do what? To begin to save Israel. So I want to pause here. I remind us of a few things as we work through. An angel of the Lord appeared. If you think back with me to Judges chapter 6, the story of Gideon, we reference the angel appearing to Gideon. It seems as if our Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit visits his people in a beautiful way. More than likely, in the Old Testament text, when an angel of the Lord appears, more than likely it's the Son of God. I referenced this back uh, with Gideon, but now I don't, I don't think it clicked with this woman at this point. Like, it's kind of a big deal. I'm going to explain that further, but I just want you to understand it's a big deal. It didn't click with her just like it didn't with Gideon at first. This angel, this man, this strange man appears. But we'll see in the second encounter with the angel that God gives them, her and her husband, kind of a glimpse of who he is as they truly have seen the Son of God. Now let's think about the storyline of the Bible. This is where it gets kind of fun, particularly when an angel of the Lord appears in regards to a child being born. Abram, Sarah, was barren, right? If you think back to this, Abraham, Abram, before he was Abraham, Sarah was barren, old in age, and an angel of the Lord did what? Shows up and promises them that their child would be a blessing to the entire world. New Testament. John the Baptist, an angel of the Lord, shows up, born to Elizabeth, who was barren, meaning she could not conceive, could not have children. We can go there and see she was well along in her years, but an angel of the Lord promises a son that would what? Prepare the way for the Messiah. And then, of course, that's why I think it's in in God's providential beauty with Advent kicking off, let's take Mary. Her pregnancy was impossible for a totally different reason. She was a virgin. And at this point, the miraculous birth of Jesus goes off the charts. God would open the wombs of Sarah and Elizabeth so that they could conceive a child naturally. But for Mary, God would enable her to conceive without human father at all. Like the math doesn't add up there. Like You know the story. It doesn't add up. As you read the Christmas story with your younger children, that word will pop up and you might have some questions. That's what's happened with us along the years. That math doesn't add up. And so Keller says this, God has often worked through a child whose existence is impossible. I love that. Did you hear that? God has often worked through a child whose existence is impossible. Like what seems to be humanly impossible, God miraculously provides a deliverer. 
He alone is the giver and the provider of life. Now, I was praying through this this week, and I, and I got to this. Um, I'm not projecting Cody and I's own experience. I'm not projecting this, you know, anything that I presume to know of anybody in this room. But there's a reality that I don't want to rush through this. And here's what that is. These women were carrying a cloud of shame. Right? Culturally, they couldn't produce children, and they lived with a sense of disappointment. Can I just say this? If you've experienced the loss of a child, I'm sorry. Like, I don't want you to hear this and think, well, I guess God's not for me because I've lost. I've never been able to carry. I'm not a mother. Like, I don't want you to hear this and feel forgotten. I want you to hear this and and see the hope that happens when the king of mercy actually shows up on the scene. Like, I grieve alongside you. Cody and I have experienced that miscarriage. I I would never presume to even know and feel what she feels as a mom. And so if that is you, I grieve alongside you and know that there's not a lot I could say or do to make things all right or better for you. But God can show up in those moments of heavy grief and shame and disappointment, just like he did with these ladies, culturally, looked down upon, barren, could not conceive, and he can actually move towards you in mercy. And if it's there in his mercy that he can lift any of that shame or disgrace or disappointment that you are feeling or have experienced, and he can actually bring you honor and joy, even in your pain and suffering. And so my prayer is that you would allow the Father to actually draw near to you in that pain, that you'd find honor, joy, and peace in Jesus and simply just know that the Father sees you and he loves you. And if that still doesn't sit with you and you're like, well, that's not me, may I remind us all, and this is beautiful truth, that the birth of Jesus actually, so what God would step in culturally and heal those people, those women who couldn't bear their own child and conceive through them, Let's think about the birth of Jesus that actually brought disgrace to Mary and her son. Born into a scandal and out of much suspicion. Keller, in that same paragraph, he goes on and he says, these children who were born would gain their honor. These children, meaning the ones that were conceived miraculously, They would gain, they would go on and gain their honor and glory in order to do their work. But Jesus lost all of his honor and glory to do his work. The Father sees you. He's provided a way through his son Jesus. And so may we all find hope and honor and joy and peace in and through Jesus this season. So the second thing I want to just, I didn't want to move past that too quickly. I wanted to just share that. The second thing I want us to clarify is Samson is the only judge chosen before he is born or even conceived. Think back along the line. Every other judge was appointed. The Spirit of God came upon them at a specific time. Samson was chosen before he was born and was miraculously conceived. 
Simply put, Samson didn't choose this. It was his lot from the womb. God providentially and miraculously chose to give Samson his life and to set his entire life apart before he was even conceived. Think about some of the other judges, right? They show up on the scene self-appointed. Think back to chapter 7 and 8. Just self-appointed, like, hey, I think I'm the king. Y'all need me. I'm the judge. Some of them stumbled into it. Some of them, out of a, a false sense of humility, like denied it, like, oh, no, it's not me, you know, and, and God's like, no, it is you. No, it's not me. Show me. And he's like, it is you. Let's go. And here we have Samson who would be born into this role. It's very interesting. His entire life from birth until death was going to be set apart. According to the angel of the Lord, it was going to be set apart for God, which is the last thing that I want to mention in regards to Samson and his birth. He would be set apart as a Nazarite from birth in order to begin to save Israel. Angel of the Lord gives her three stipulations. If you look back in your text for her and her child, to be a Nazarite, what that simply meant is that you agreed, you, you wholeheartedly said, I want to live a life that's set apart. In their context, this was a way for both men and women that they would choose to live by. It was a lifestyle that reflected this vow of complete devotion to God. I'm all in. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm all in. So we see it clearly laid out in both Leviticus and Numbers as well as here and from the angel of the Lord. Both the moms and both the mom and Samson were to live their lives in a way that upheld these three specific things. Abstinence from wine, strong drink, or anything associated with the vine. No cutting of the hair. No contact with the dead. So Samson was being born into this way of life. Didn't choose it. He was ordained, born into it. Before he even took his first breath. Samson was under God's rule and God's reign. He was to be truly set apart from God before his birth. Why? Well, we see because this is how God would begin to save Israel. Clearly, Samson was going to be used by God against the Philistines. Like even in the mess of a life, we'll see over the next few chapters. Like spoiler alert here, the dude breaks every one of these stipulations. Terrible. Shaves his head, associates with the dead, and he undoubtedly drinks at his wedding feast. But nonetheless, he is the one that God chooses to begin to save Israel. You see, Samson would be an incomplete savior. He would only be able to begin to deliver God's people. And he is our last judge. And in the Lord's sovereign work, we see Samson point us to something greater. We can't get to King David without going through the work of Samson. In the shadow of Samson, we actually see a better Savior. These men will be used to bring about a salvation that was incomplete. You could track the lineage, all of the work of Samson, into Samuel, into Samuel actually appointing King David, and all of the work that you see with David that points us to the better David. You could go back and do all of that. They would provide rest from their enemies. They did sometimes a phenomenal job of, of providing salvation at that particular time, but they could not bring victory over sin or death. It's beyond the greater David that we actually see Jesus, the one who will bring complete salvation for his people who will be the finished work through his blood. 
And so the angel who appeared to Mary declared, if you think back to the birth of Jesus, the angel who appeared to Mary declared, he will save his people from their sins. With Samson, we see he will begin. He will begin. God will begin this work. And with Jesus, we see he will save his people from their sins. So as the story continues, the angel appeared to Manoah's wife, still a bit unsure of who this man was. She hears from him. She goes to her husband, explains to him what the angel of the Lord has has said. Manoah, not really sure what to make of it. I think in an honorable way, he prays to the Lord. You can see that. And he asks, hey, God, would you send this person back? Send the man back to us. I believe my wife, but could you do this for me? And so the Lord answers. Angel of the Lord appears back to the woman. She goes and she gets her husband. I love that too, right? Manoah asks, God, would you send him back to us? And the sovereign Lord sends him the man, Jesus, the son of God, back to the unnamed woman. I just think there's something beautiful about that. She goes, she gets her husband and says, hey, he's back. And so now they're engaging in this conversation. Angel of the Lord, Manoah, and an unmanned, unnamed woman. And so um, she goes, this happens, they come back. He explains again the commands. Hey, remember, this is what you're to do. You're supposed to live this way. He'll be set apart. Make sure you do this. And now Manoah, he's just curious as to what, who exactly is this man? Like his, his interest has, has peaked here. Who is this man? And so as we saw with Gideon, he wanted to show hospitality to the visitors. So he wanted to, uh, out of hospitality, out of a generous giving approach, he wanted to prepare a meal, but he also wanted to know the stranger's name. And the angel of the Lord, he responds by not revealing his name, but he simply says this, it's beyond your understanding. Like it's too amazing for a mere human to understand. And I believe it's here that we see some pretty incredible faith take place between an unnamed woman and a man named Manoah. They go, they prepare this meal for this man, the angel of the Lord who won't give him the name because it's too great for their understanding. And in doing so, the Lord does another amazing thing yet again. He ascended into the flame in verse 19 and 20. You can look back and see that. At that moment, we see Manoah and his bride realize it was actually an angel of the Lord. And because of that, he knows the historical truth of what would happen when people actually see the glory of God. The same thing that Gideon did. He believes he's going to die. And I love this. His bride remains calm. She says the faith, the faith that she has is unbelievable. She says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted our sacrifice. Basically, she says, hey, it's all right. Because she believed the word from the Lord, just like another woman who did some 1,200 years later. May it be to me as you have said. The mother of our Christ. She remained obedient. This unnamed woman remained obedient and faithful to the Nazarite code. She committed her life to living as God had commanded just like another woman would do some 1,200 years later, named Mary, who says, I'm the Lord's servant. Man, what faith this woman had. Manoah showed, the, the husband, the father showed faith as well. He believed his wife. He wanted more proof. That's why he, he asked for the angel to return. I think we can look at this and think, man, he seemed to have a lack of faith. I think he asks here for help. 
because he assumes the promise is going to come true. I don't think it's a lack of faith. I think he's like, this is going to happen. This seems to be an angel from the Lord. This seems to be the Son of God. This promise will come true, that he'd have a son born to them. So I think it's in that moment he actually just feels the weight of that. He desires to do the right thing, to, be, to do the honorable thing as the stranger appeared and said. But no specifics were given except for these three things, the Nazarite code of conduct, if you will. But how am I, Manoah's in his mind, I'm sure he's thinking, but how am I supposed to do this? Like, give me some rule book. Give me a guidebook to do this. You've given me three things. What happens when he turns 12? What, what does that conversation look like with Samson? What am I supposed to do? What do we do? He wanted rules to live by and how to raise his child in order to please God. He needed some reassurance. And instead, what did he receive? The presence of the Lord. God gives us something much better than a guidebook. He gives us himself. God just wanted their obedience and faith. And so this morning, maybe in closing, maybe you find yourself in a season of wanting an answer. Like you just wish God would send this airplane message in the sky. I've done this. God, would you just send one of those airplanes? Would you just send this squirrel to jump out of this tree, drop the acorn on my head, and boom, all of a sudden. I've never quite thought like that. But there's times where I'm like, would you just do this? Would you just help me in this? More than a guidebook to your life, if you're a believer, he's given you himself, all of him. His word, his spirit, he's given you a community of believers around you to walk this life together. We have everything we need, as Paul says, for life and godliness. And we, As a matter of fact, we've been given way more than our Old Testament heroes of the faith. Like we're on this side of the cross. So as Paul says, we can enjoy all of God. This is what the angel of the Lord was trying to get Manoah to realize. And what I believe the Spirit of God is reminding us of, us of this morning is that we get all of him. She gives birth. They name him Samson. We see in the close here, he begins to grow. He's blessed by God. The Spirit begins to work in him, to stir him. God's Spirit was pushing him, pushing Samson towards the work that God had and wanted him to do. And what we'll see as the story unfolds in January We'll see that Samson's strength was unparalleled. Unbelievable stories. Rather than lead an army, he battled the Philistines, Philistine army single-handedly. We'll see that he was a deeply flawed hero as well, whose life was so entangled with the people against whom he fought. He violated a number of Ten Commandments. He didn't keep his Nazarite vow, and yet God continues to use broken and busted people to push back darkness. To advance his kingdom, what hope we have today. Let's pray. Lord, would you draw near to us in this time? God, would you stir in our hearts as you did with Samson years ago to grow to look more like you? I wonder what that even looked like. As we look at your, your scripture there where the Spirit stirred him.
Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. God, what did that look like? The fact that you've given us yourself, we have everything we need to worship you in word and spirit and in truth. Like, I, I, I see that, and I have to believe that as the Spirit stirred him then, it's doing the same thing and stirring us now to look more like you, to be plugged in and connected to a community of believers, to spur one another on to love and good works, to love one another, encourage one another, honor one another, serve one another, gently rebuke one another. Pray for one another. Like, I just have to think about the 50 plus one another's in the New Testament and think, man, I, I wonder if that is what it looked like for your spirit to stir Samson. And I wonder what it looks like for us, for your spirit to stir in us. Some that might be a stirring towards salvation, others it might be a stirring to loving and being present with our children and our family more. Might be stirring in us in this moment to fight fairly, fight for unity and fight sin alongside one another. Might be stirring in us to, to just be joyful and humble people before you. Whatever it is, God, I, I trust you. You're at work, you're moving thankful here in a second we have a chance to take communion and, and see um, honestly if we get to see the better judge the fruition of your work through your son Jesus come to completion through his body broken and his blood shed what a beautiful reminder that is so Lord would you just stir in our hearts this morning have freedom to move as we sing and Take communion. Would you do supernatural work this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.